back to Israel now and the 24-hour ultimatum is still in place. I don't know how many hours they've got left now uh, to move south in the Gaza Strip before what is anticipated to be a land incursion on the part of Israel to, as Israel puts it, clean out Hamas. Hamas. Frank Gardner is the BBC's security correspondent. I spoke to him a few minutes ago and asked him what the situation is. First of all, for Israel, there isn't a dilemma because they are so absolutely overwhelmed by the ferocity of the attack last Saturday. They've called it their 9-11, that normal, the normal kind of bounds of restraint, and they don't always show a lot of restraint, especially this government, but there is no question of it. And the difference, I think, this time is that Israel, which has been a very divided nation up until recently because of the hardline policies of its prime minister and its very right-wing government, they are pretty much united behind having a really dealing a heavy blow to Hamas. And it's clear that the this Israeli government is determined to crush Hamas's military capability. And to do that, it has ordered half the population of Gaza, that's 1.1 million people, to leave the north of the Gaza Strip and move to the south. And Hamas which rules Gaza, has told people to ignore that. But a a lot of people are not ignoring it. They are traveling by truck and on foot and in car to the south of Gaza in the hopes of finding some safety. Others are not moving. They're saying, we left our homes in 1948. We're not doing it again. Meanwhile, the US is trying desperately to persuade Egypt to open its border to allow an outflowing of Palestinian refugees from Gaza Egypt doesn't want to do that. It doesn't think it'll be a temporary measure. It thinks it'll end up being a permanent refugee camp inside its borders. So it's a very awkward position at the moment. And meanwhile, it looks like the Israeli army is poised, ready to go into the Gaza Strip to this warren of back streets and tunnels and bunkers and cellars in the hopes of trying to flush out the 30,000 plus jihadist fighters of Hamas and Islamic Jihad. It's always interesting to hear that the Netanyahu government is extremely right-wing, which, of course, it is, but it was voted in. It's, I mean, people seem to talk about the Netanyahu government as if it's in some way dissociated from the bulk of the Israeli population. Well, it is dissociated, or certainly he is dissociated, from a large portion of the Israeli population. I've been speaking to many of them in the last few days um, because of his very divisive policies. Remember that up until this attack happened, there were huge protests by Israelis right across Israel at the reforms he's trying to do, trying to basically take away the powers of the Supreme Court um, of its justices, which is very divisive and unpopular. And at the same time, his cabinet was pretty uncompromising when it comes to allowing settlements, Jewish settlers, to continue colonizing land that is supposed to be designated for a future Palestinian state. And that is the fundamental problem here, is that uh, this cycle of violence is going to continue for as long as Gaza is ruled by a violent organization that does not accept the right of Israel to exist, and as long as settlements, Israeli settlements, are being built across Arab land that is recognized by the UN as Arab land that should be 
a future Palestinian state. Unless those two things change, this is going to go on and on. Can I just do a reality check there, Frank? I've just done an interview with somebody who rejected my description of the West Bank settlements, the ongoing West Bank settlements, as illegal. How would you describe them? Well, Israel doesn't consider them to be illegal, but um, there are numerous... I mean, I don't want to get involved in a whole legal wrangle here because that's always what happens over this, but they have been described internationally as illegal under international law. And ultimately, this comes down to the UN Security Council resolutions 242 and 338, which call for Israel to withdraw to its pre-1967 six-day war boundaries. Um, now, that is very unlikely to happen, but ultimately, if there is ever going to be a lasting peace, there has to be a proper Palestinian homeland um, with contiguous areas, which isn't carved up into a kind of honeycomb, a Swiss cheese of little pockets of Palestinian territory here and there. They need a proper homeland. And Israelis need to be able to live in peace without being rocketed from areas that, i.e. Gaza, that they gave back to the Palestinians in 2005. There, there were no Israeli troops on Gaza, on Gazan territory when these rocket attacks started. Um, so in that sense, you could say that militarily it was unprovoked. Palestinians and Hamas would say it was provoked because of the, um, the actions of Israeli settlers in the Israeli army against Palestinians in the West Bank. So again, it comes down to this fact that Israelis need to be able to live in peace within their recognized borders, and Palestinians need to have a homeland that is a realistic and just, um, has got you know borders that are realistic, um, which need to be thrashed out. Yeah, that's the holy grail, if you'll excuse that expression. What Hamas has done, it seems, if nothing else, is unify a fractured Israel against it. Well, they have for now, yes. And I mean, the, one of the tragic things about this is, is that um, at least one of the people murdered by, um, by Hamas in that horrific raid last Saturday morning in, or a week ago um, was a peace activist. Um, and no one really wants to hear from peace activists right now in Israel because they are so appalled by what Hamas did. And I mean, it, it is the absolute ISIS level of brutality, brutality and savagery. It's the gratuitous violence of it, shooting children in the head, in chasing down music festival goers and butchering them in cold blood. And that is what has shocked and appalled most of the Western world, not all of it, because obviously there are lots of protests and it's understandable that people should want to protest to give Palestinians a homeland, which they deserve. But the problem is that every time it gets close to peace negotiations, violence erupts on one, or there is a provocation on one side or the other, very often by violent jihadists who will set off suicide bombs or fire rockets at Israel, but then there will be something provocative on the other side, and it pushes the two sides further apart. That is the tragedy of this. And as ever, it's the civilian, the innocent civilian populations that get caught in the middle. I know, it's a horrendous situation. Were you surprised that Hamas was so successful in its attacks? I mean, it goes without saying that Israel let its security guard down, but 
It really let it down, didn't it? I was very surprised, as everybody was. It was supposed to be something called an iron wall um, that cost a, over a billion dollars to construct. So the boundary between Gaza or the border between Gaza and Israel was supposed to be protected by high walls above and below ground, watchtowers, remote controlled machine guns, sensors, radar, etc. And I think that's part of the problem is that in investing in all this high tech, um, the Israelis took their eye off the ball here. And there were warnings coming, we now know, from Egypt and probably from Israel's informants inside the Palestinian territory of, of Gaza. But they were ignored. They were misassessed by people in authority in Israel who thought, nah, Hamas is not going to do attempt. Why, you know, they're not going to do a big attack. All the attention was on the West Bank, and it was assumed that that border was safe. They got it very, very wrong. So, yes, it was an appalling failure of intelligence and I think a failure of imagination by senior Israelis as well, that they didn't see this coming. And Hamas were their OPSEC, their operational security was very tight. Very few people knew about it. They, they kept their plans off, offline, communicating by word of mouth rather than digitally. So Israel didn't see it coming. What do you think Israel is planning to achieve by telling Palestinians in the Gaza Strip to move south? OK, they're going to put troops in the north, but Hamas will go south as well. I mean, what? I don't quite understand the point. I think a lot of people are asking exactly the same question because don't forget that there are there are two Gaza strips. There's the one that you see above ground, yeah, and then there's the one below ground, which is an entire labyrinth. I mean, Hamas have boasted that they've got over 500 kilometers of tunnels, um, and certainly some of the airstrikes will have taken out some of these tunnels, will have collapsed them, but some of them go really deep. We're talking about a hundred foot here, you know, 30 meters, and some of them will be dead ends. Some of them will be booby-trapped, um, where they will try and lure in Israeli troops and then blow the tunnel up around them. So this is going to be, you know, a real minefield, literally, for in Israeli troops if they do go in on the ground. And I think the, one of the problems for Israel is that, that it's technological and numerical advantage. You know, if they pour all three to 400,000 troops in to fight 30,000 fighters, Okay, that gives them a 10 to 1 advantage, but they're up against a hostile population who are, in some cases, going to be shielding Hamas. Their tanks won't be much use in crowded, rubble-strewn back streets. Israel's tanks are really built for fighting wars in the Sinai and the Golan Heights. They're not built for trying to maneuver in narrow back streets. So they're going to have to use drones a lot to kind of look ahead to see what's coming down the street, even in the tunnels. But it's going to be... Uh, a, a, an area full of traps for them. And as you rightly say, there's nothing to stop Hamas using those tunnels to filter south, wait for Israel's incursion to finish, and then filter back in again. As we know, Blinken's travelling around the Middle East talking to people. Can you see any, any halt to this by diplomatic means in the near future? Well, it's interesting that he's been in Qatar, meeting the Emir Qatar, which by the way, hosts a massive U.S. airbase, a coalition airbase where a lot of U.S. allies, including Great Britain, U.K., quite possibly New Zealand uh, as well, also operate from uh, from time to time. Um, it's been the base from which all air operations around the Middle East have been run, 
including Afghanistan, when the West and NATO was, in, was involved there. Qatar is home to the political leadership of Hamas. Um, and it's also interestingly been where the Taliban have had um, their political leadership for some of the time. So, yes, I mean, the, there are there are possible ways. I mean, one of the things that's been discussed at the moment is a prisoner swap, because remember that Hamas have taken somewhere between 100 and 160 human hostages into Gaza, some of them old and frail, some of them children, some of them disabled. And there are discussions underway. They haven't broken through yet, but there are discussions underway about doing some kind of a prisoner swap. If that happens, that will at least mean there is some kind of a dialogue. That would mean a chink of light at the end of this very, very dark tunnel. And that was Frank Gardner, who's the, the um, British security reporter talking about the situation in Gaza.